This evening I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. Preach from there this evening once I get everything straight. Normally I do this at the beginning of the service and I'm doing it here in the middle. A couple of notes. As you, um, I want to speak to the young people. Uh, One of the things that you can do, and I know that perhaps when you're in worship and we come to that element in worship that is called the pastoral prayer, you're probably thinking, all right, I need to buckle up for having to sit still and be quiet for anywhere from 5 to 12 minutes. Um, I don't know if that gets easier when you get older, especially for people like me that was never diagnosed with ADHD but has a self-diagnosis. Um, one of the things that you can do, children, when um, I or one of the elders is praying up here, is to listen to what they're saying. And one of the elements in all of worship is to add your amen. So when Elder Grigg is praying for someone, you think about that, and you also pray at the same time. And that's how you can order your prayers. That's how you can stop thinking about other things, you know, like TV or Pokemon or what you're going to have for dinner when you get home later. Um, Help yourself focus on worship by involving yourself in every element of worship. Uh, It's not that hard, but it does require discipline. It does require some discipline. Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 30. I'll preach from the same. uh, And I would invite you to listen as I read from God's word. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live also. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers, if You obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law. And if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, 
I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. This far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come before you. Perhaps we are tired or distracted. We think of the cares that are coming. Oh Lord, would you, by your spirit, strengthen us even now to focus upon the good word, to focus upon word of life, the words of life that you would have for us this evening, that we might grow in grace and be nourished according to all of your redeeming promises. And so strengthen us, not just now, but in the road that lies ahead, that we might be faithful participants, faithful proclaimers of Christ, the one who rescues us from sin and death. Oh, Lord, then teach us tonight in the time that we have that you might be glorified, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, we come to the end of all of Moses' preaching. It's his final sermon, or at least the final part of his final sermon. Deuteronomy really consists of three sermons, three rather lengthy sermons, and here at the end of this covenant renewal ceremony, Moses not only reminds Israel of what he has said, but he points them to their glorious future. It's not all glorious. There is a promise of exile, but there is also a promise of return. And in light of the wondrous things, he presents them with a choice. Choose life or choose death. And that all the information that we need has been given to us. It is simple. It is clean, it is clear, it is plain. We do not need gurus, we do not need priests, we need but the word, and it is clear to us here. Deuteronomy 30 speaks of a great restoration that will come after a time of exile, a time of covenant cursing. It is a time of restoration that will not be unlike the time of delivering Israel into the land to begin with. In fact, that great picture of Israel going over the Jordan, being led by Joshua, is not the result of mere obedience. It is the result of deliverance at the hands of a deliverer, that being Joshua, Yeshua, Christ himself named Yeshua, who in his justifying work, takes us across the river 
where we live in that glorious land and covenant relationship with God, where we are to live according to his covenant purposes. And so tonight we read not only of the ancient church, we read of the church today. What is our obligation? What has God done to provide for us what is needed to live in that land? Two points that I want to make tonight. The first, drug across the law. Drug across the law. And then second, what only God can do. What only God can do. Let's look at the first point. Drug across the law. It's a hard sermon. Uh, If you, like me, read this, you realize, well, how do we do it? In light of all that God has commanded, how are we to live not merely as a society, but a society of saints devoted to the cause of God's righteousness? Not just individuals, but as a corporate body, as a covenant community. How are we to keep righteous fellowship with God and with one another? Especially if we are there and Moses says to us, oh, by the way, um, you're not going to do this. There is an element in the law that not only prescribes for us how we should live, but also the inherent weakness as to why we are not able to live that way. And so this sermon, this final sermon in the book of Deuteronomy that is one of many, many deliverances, utterances given by Moses to the people of Israel, many of them were never recorded and laid down in Scripture for us. He's saying, in essence, you guys are going to blow it. (laughs) I imagine, parents, there are those moments in your life when you are training, teaching, exercising authority over your children, and even as you are speaking, you know 30 seconds later, is it going to stick? And you're not a cynic if you say, probably not. You're what we call a realist. Uh, The reflex against obedience to the righteous rule of God, even through parents, that reflex is strong. The desire to be one's own God, one's own ruler, to bow down our hearts to many different kinds of idols. God knows that we are dust. He knows our frame. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are sinners. And our tendency is rebellion. And so it is not just enough that we have been given the law. It is also essential within the covenant provisions of God's extraordinary patience that he also give us the altar One in which we are told how to live, the other is the place to which we flee when we have not lived according to God's revealed will. Law and gospel is what we call it. Law and gospel. And these are not at odds with one another. In fact, there is a place for both of them in the life of every person. Such that we can say this, that the beginning of all faithful law reception is a heart of humility, of gratitude, and of trust that what God asks of us, ultimately, he alone is able to provide for us. It is only by God's transforming grace, it is only by being reconciled first through the blood that is in the Old Testament, prefiguring the work of the Messiah, but that blood of rams and goats speaks of our need for reconciliation. 
for the way of dealing with the curse is not merely through obedience, but death has to come. And so this is a hard sermon. It's a hard sermon because we do not always love the law. And for Israel, it's especially difficult because they have not yet seen the Messiah as we have. And yet they are called to bring both to mind as it relates to the covenant that God has made with Israel. The covenant curses in response to disobedience and covenant blessing in response to obedience. God is teaching Israel how they are to think, how they are to live, what posture they are to have in light of his lordship over them. And they are to provide no excuse, no quarter for the ways of the world. They are to be distinct. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the opening of this chapter begins with God through Moses talking about This future state of blessing now, it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind. That is to remember among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Moses here could be speaking perhaps about the great future return of the people of Israel, the Jewish cultural people, who may one day, through the testimony of the Gentile church, uh, are brought back. And I think there is a place for our thinking, perhaps not from Deuteronomy 30, but certainly from the book of Romans. Paul anticipates it. But what we need to see even more specifically as it relates to Deuteronomy 30 is the church as a whole. Then when we read Deuteronomy 30, this is not merely a prophecy related to Old Testament Israel. This is about you and this is about me. It is about the spiritual church. It is about Jew and Gentile. It is about any who are reconciled through the future ministry of the Messiah. And therefore, in order to interpret Deuteronomy chapter 30 well... We need to go back to the book of Exodus and see what God does for the nation of Israel as he delivers them from Egypt. God is delivering them out of the house of sin and death, out of the house of bondage. It is not merely a socio-political freedom and liberty. It is a liberty of religion. It is a liberty of soul deliverance from the seed of the serpent Pharaoh who ruled over Israel by the power of Satan as a means of oppressing and seeking to negate the promises of God. And when Moses came, he came not speaking for himself, but for the Lord and said, let my people go. Let them go. And Pharaoh said, no, And so when Israel was finally let go, it was because Christ, prior to his incarnation, was doing a work of deliverance for Israel that is not covenantally in type and shadow unlike his deliverance for us from the land of sin and death. You and I need that same deliverance. And that is what Moses is speaking of. Not just the return of exile from the Persian Empire, but from the deliverance 
under the weight and power of Satan through the ministry of Yeshua, Jesus Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection. That is what Moses is ultimately talking about. He is talking about the time in which the covenant will actually be kept. And it will be kept not by men alone. But there will come a time when Israel will be delivered. And when I say Israel, here I want you to think the whole true church, Jew and Gentile, all who are in Christ Jesus. Wherever they are driven, Christ will go get them and he will bring them into the house of God. And in the same glorious way in which every tribe, tongue, and nation, wherever these people are scattered, you don't know where they are. You don't have the radar system. God does in his providence. And he sees every one of those lost sheep of Israel and he will bring them into his fold. And what will happen in conjunction with that great universal deliverance of which we read and looked at this morning is God will also then put the curse upon the nations who reject him. That all who war against the church will be cursed This is the great universal work of covenant expansion that cannot be done either through Joshua or through the nation, but only through the Messiah. And so even as Israel has been drugged across the law, Moses is bringing them to a place where they anticipate a change, a shift, greater revelation of a greater covenantal reality. Now, the terms of the covenant don't change. There will come a time when there will be many who flock to the house of God with their hearts and with their souls. That means they're true citizens. They mean it. They're circumcised not in the flesh, but in their hearts. They will come. But it is not because God has relaxed the terms of the covenant. God did not become soft in the New Testament. He became soft towards us by being hard towards the Son. That's the difference. That is how the covenant of works can be fulfilled. And you and I are still welcomed having violated that very covenant. It is because the Father now relates to sinners through the covenant of grace made through Christ Jesus If you want to know the the beauty and the depth and the efficacy of the ministry of the Messiah, you must know the first five books of the Bible. There is no grounding. There's no basis. There's no covenant context. You don't get the beauty of the end of the story without knowing the beginning of the story. It's like one of those epic scenes from a film. 
and someone sends you a clip of it, and you go, this is so powerful. And you watch it and go, I don't get it. Well, it's because you didn't see all that led to it. And so as God is, through his prophet Moses, and he's about to bury Moses, and Joshua is about to lead Israel into the promised land, the Lord, through his servant, drags Israel back and forth across the law so that they may not say ever, it is through our hands and our hands alone that we will keep covenant with the Lord. Now, some may say, as it relates to the law, it's too hard, it's too obtuse. That is only true of those who've never read it or if you have read it, are stubborn in your rebellion against it. Let's look at verse 11. For this commandment, that commandment is keep covenant, which I command you today is not too mysterious. It's not too far off. It's not across the sea. It's not in heaven. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Where is it? You're chewing on it. I'm pushing it down into you through repetition Repetition, repetition, and not just repetition, but the Israelites have seen the consequence of disobedience and they have seen the blessing of obedience. They have seen it and not in simulation. They've seen it in real life. These Israelites buried their parents in the desert. Why? Because they disobeyed the voice of God. And so God is not saying here... The law is easy, so you should be able to keep it and please me through keeping it. What he's saying is, don't you ever say that you don't know it. So you can never say, even if you are not an Israelite, for every man has the law of God imprinted upon their very hearts. Do not ever say that I do not have something against you. Nor ought you ever say... I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So why is it then that we do not obey? Certainly for the church, and I'm speaking to people who are by and large in the church and have been for long enough to know at the very least the Ten Commandments. Why do you commit adultery? Oh, I forgot that was in the Ten Oh, I need to remember that next time. Do you know why? Because you want to. It's not that you don't know the law. Here's the rub. You don't like the law. You don't like what the law calls you to. You don't like that the law tramples upon your lifestyle. And so in order to escape the thing that is very plain, it's right here. It's right in front of your face. And it's not just external. It's in your very heart. You have to do what? You have to excise your very heart in order to survive your rebellion. Just look at the world in which we live today. Let's talk about the West with all of its sophistication and all of its commitment to science and things that are obvious, right? It's obvious. I passed one of those signs walking the other day, right? Women's rights are human's rights. I don't even know what most of these things mean. Water is life. That was one of them. I don't know what the political point in that is. 
that just all of these sort of anecdotes and mantras of a particular ideological position that we call the left. And what they're doing on this little thing is they're saying, in this house, we have no idea what life is like. We're totally oblivious to real life. That's what they're actually saying. And what they're doing is they're placing that thing in their yard as a conscientious rejection of the law that is written in their hearts. It isn't, I don't know, therefore I guess I'll choose these things. What we do is we take the law and we plaster it on the back and we stick it over the Ten Commandments and say, that's, that's better. Because there were times where Israel said, well, Lord, we're not sure what to do. And like any good discerning father, he looks at them and says, do you think I'm a fool? Have I not made it clear? Do you not know that the toothbrushes go back in the cup on the countertop right next to the sink? How many times have I said this? Well, Lord, maybe you should say it again. And this is how humans live in light of the law of God. This is one of the excuses we make. Lord, we were not aware that that was a rule. But God has taken great pains, if you will, to show Israel and impress upon them, not just on tablets of stone, but in living color, what kind of God he is and what he expects of them. And what does he expect? Heart and soul commitment. He wants the circumcision, not merely of the flesh. He wants circumcision of the heart. This is the kind of law keeping he wants. That you do what he says and you do it for the right reason. In fact, our own standards speak about what true moral obedience, true righteous obedience to God is. First, it has to be according to God's righteous standard. And second... It cannot be done out of a heart of sin, a sinful motivation. Instead, it must arise from and erupt from a new heart. What that means is this. Only a Christian, a true Christian, not just a Christian in name only, but one who is born again can actually keep the law. The only law keepers in a way that is truly spiritually righteous, are those who are spiritually alive. And who's going to do that? Who alone? Only the one who can deliver us. And so he says in verse 15, see, do you think they see? Some of them do, some of them don't. I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments. His statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go in to possess. This is good news. And if you're like me, there are those that you know who hear this and say, "That's I don't like that. It's not the kind of life. Actually, this is the kind of life everyone wants, right? They want to be blessed. They want to be fruitful. They may not want to have children, but they may want to have money. They want power. 
They want the very things God promised Adam and Eve in the garden. Dominion, power, strength, glory, a name. But only on God's terms. And so, in order to actually be a keeper of the law, our hearts must be circumcised. In Proverbs chapter 3, we read, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Now, what is the great redeeming work that stands in the way of those whose hearts and souls are not near God? We must be brought back. We must first be delivered from captivity. Now, there were some in Israel, well, everyone in Israel at that time, or ones who called themselves in Israel, even though they didn't have a land in Canaan, they had all been delivered from Egypt, but they were not all out of Egypt. In fact, in the first generation, as soon as they left, there were those who said, let's go back. And this wasn't just, we like Egyptian cuisine, because they longed for the cucumbers, right? Remember that? They were willing to also take the gods. That was an okay thing. As long as there are cucumbers, we'll worship whomever they tell us to worship. That is a betrayal. It is treason. It is the spirit of Adam and Eve at the tree. It is to want the blessings of God, but not on God's terms. And so the only way in which you and I can actually be given a heart and a soul that love God and do not make excuses and submit and surrender to his will is that our hearts are freed from their captivity to sin and death. We must be justified. This is where doctrines come from, guys. The doctrines that you confess in the creeds and the catechisms do not erupt in a vacuum. They come from Scripture. And Deuteronomy 30 is a chapter about being given new hearts. It is about being born again. It's about having our sins wiped away and being called righteous in the sight of God, which leads me then to my second point. In as much as we have been drugged across the law, what it reveals is there is an act in salvation, in the building of a Christian nation, that only God can do. Again, we do not disobey because it's complicated. We disobey because we are rebellious. Which is why at the heart of God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, we find not a do as it were, but an emotional language, the calling towards the heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Our problem is rebellion. What do we do? There's nothing we can do. There is nothing ultimately that we can do to save ourselves from the great predicament. Because the great predicament is something that only God can solve. And so, Deuteronomy 30 presents us with the future glory of restoration. It presents us with the cursing of our enemies. We then find, beginning in verse 11... 
that the law is near, that the covenant will not change, that the terms cannot be broken. You have a choice, and you must choose life or death. And so when Christ comes into the world, it does not represent a a sort of relaxing of our covenant obligations. What it represents is a fulfillment of covenant obligation, not through us, but through Christ Jesus. He has come in order to do two things, to bear the reproof of our transgressions, you and I, for our sin, even relaxing one jot or tittle, as it were, deserves eternal punishment. In fact, you were born damned. You were conceived damned under the weight of the law if it were not for Christ. Because what Christ does in his death is satisfies the righteous judgment of God for your sins and mine. Which is why he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took upon himself in his human nature and in his person the weight of divine wrath for our sins. For all of the sins of the elect. With no mediation. That's a lot of wrath. It is an eternity of wrath. Given by an infinitely righteous God against those who have infinitely transgressed his righteous decrees. And not only does Christ take our sin, but all of those laws that we did not keep, he keeps them for us. He becomes our active, obedient righteousness. And so we give him our sin. And he gives us his righteousness. This is the great exchange that the altar signed and was type and shadow for in the Old Testament. This is why the Israelite would go to the animal on the altar and they would place their hand upon that animal. It was symbolic of what? Transference of guilt. Paul in the book of Romans says, that didn't really do anything. And it's not that God wasted those words. It's that it couldn't. It was there for a time to satisfy the wrath of God, but all of the sins of all of those Israelites who by faith put their hands upon that altar and that sacrifice, Christ died for their sins too. Past, present, and future, all of the sins of all of the elect are laid upon Christ. And what should that do for us? It should break your heart. It should bring you to your knees. It should teach you then, having seen Christ and how he allures your heart away, not just satisfies and pays for your sins, but then in applying his righteousness and making you alive in him, he gives you a heart and soul that actually wants to keep the law. This is good. In fact, this is the good news of the gospel. It is what God was showing Adam and his wife when he killed an animal and covered them with the skins. This is going to have to happen again and again and again and again until it doesn't have to happen anymore when Christ comes and is the perfect sacrifice and we are justified by his blood.
This is how the terms of the covenant can be fulfilled and the holiness of God is not compromised. Christ satisfies the wrath of God. He keeps covenant on our behalf and we need only lay hold of it by faith. This is a gospel presentation from Deuteronomy chapter 30. I hope that's okay. (laughs) He's reconciled us. That's how we have long life. And when we hear long life, I want you to think eternity in peace with God forever. Christ has fulfilled it. He has brought us out of captivity. He has made us holy. And the way in which we lay hold of Christ's work, the work of the Redeemer, the work of the Messiah, is we don't make excuses. Lord, I don't like that law. I don't know that law. We look at him and say, I've broken this law. And out of sight of our misery and sin, we throw ourselves at the cross and we plead Christ's righteousness. That's what it looks like. This is when Presbyterians would have altar calls if we weren't Presbyterians. Because the only response is what? Take my life. Let let it be consecrated for thee. We cannot consecrate ourselves if we are not first consecrated, made holy by Christ. And so Deuteronomy, we can't stop here. Now, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 31. That's not what I mean. Moses wants Israel not to think only of what has happened, but what is to come. We are to look at the cross. We are to look at the only cure for our spiritual rebellion, and we are to throw ourselves at Christ's feet and say, Woe am I, I am a sinner, and I am undone. If you have done that, what then is the obligation? Having been given a new heart and a new soul, don't make excuses for your rebellion. Surrender to his lordship and choose life. Because in the spirit and by his power, guess what? Now you can. The spirit has given us new wills, and it is not easy, but it is possible Embrace the one who has died for us and walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God.